Welcome back, y'all, to episode 141 of the Zachary Wingate Podcast, where we go 365 days bringing you a podcast every single day. Nothing is off the table. The intention of this podcast is to master the short-form podcast while informing as well as entertaining. So sit back, relax, and listen, and enjoy the show. Alrighty, so getting into a couple... uh, Getting to some information today. First of all, I just want to say, um, like, do you ever get in arguments online? I mean, obviously, this is very 2013, but for some reason, sometimes, like, you know, I, I have TikTok, and I know TikTok will pick up what I'm saying and then implement it and put it into an algorithm. And um, last few days, I've gotten a couple arguments about the concepts of communism as it relates as a whole. And I got an argument today because I had a TikTok pop-up about the importance of Mao Zedong and um, his socialist movement and kind of what leader he was as it relates to communism. And I was like, man, why is this, first of all, in my algorithm? And second of all, you know, I don't know anyone who's ever going to really follow Mao Zedong, you know, with his and these Mao movements and indicate he was a good leader. Um, I had a conversation with somebody on TikTok who has pictures of their cats in their profile and they were trying to argue with me that Mao Zedong was a great leader and we are trying to as a result of you know being in the United States you're peering it through a western mindset and I literally was like first of all buddy I have lived in China for two years and I have studied Chinese policy and I have a really good understanding of it and as I was in China you know people like You know, they give Mao Zedong the 70-30 rule. And I've had Chinese people, multiple times, Chinese people tell me this. That that Mao Zedong was 70% of a good leader and 30% of a bad leader. The 30% was the 30 million that got killed during the the Great Leap Forward. You know, the Great Leap Forward, like, millions and millions of people were starving. They had tons of issues. You know, Mao Zedong was also telling people to go out and melt their iron and sell it and smelt it for the importance of um, going into like um, generating more iron than other countries because it could impact their GDP. Like crazy stuff like that. And then we look at different breakdowns of Chiang Kai-shek and, and other influential leaders of before Mao Zedong and even uh, Kim Jong-un. And there's just, the list is there. It's like, you know, nobody can ever tell me Mao Zedong was a great leader. I mean, you can give him kudos on his war capabilities, his ability to implement and have strong guerrilla warfare. I mean, you look at what he did with North Korea and how, you know, the only reason why North Korea didn't become a part of Korea is because we were fighting, you know, thousands of Korea, I'm sorry, of Chinese people, you know, and that was kind of like a proxy war that was pushing it through. People don't talk about it a whole lot. But, you know, during the Korean War, um, where more people died than Vietnam, we were legit fighting the Chinese. And, you know, that's why the concept of, like, if you're fighting a Chinese person and they don't have a gun, they'll just keep running at you or they'll pick up the gun of their comrade because their government, their government didn't have enough resources to produce the weapons needed. So there's, like, just multiple arguments we could go down, but... What I kind of wanted to talk about today is getting into part two of the One Belt, One Road initiative. I talked more about the Gwadar port, the impact of it, and um, the no interest loans within Africa. But as we take a step back, we kind of see 
different things happening within China. Um, you know, if we look at the One Belt, One Road initiative, it really kicked off around 2013. And this is coming in during the Xi Jinping, I'm sorry, um, yes, the Xi Jinping era, where he's coming in and implementing it and trying to really emulate the Silk Road. So taking something old and making it new in order to create something new to create the type of power they had whenever they were older. I know that seems kind of like a weird transition, but that's honestly it. You know, I've talked about it before in this podcast about how China in itself is trying to emulate what it had during the Silk Road by creating more infrastructure, more jobs, because they have to keep building, because the thing that keeps Xi Jinping up at night is how do you keep 1 billion people working? Now, if we start to analyze different aspects of it, one of the, the stands start to come into play. So Kazakhstan, 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 Uzbekistan, all these countries share kind of this common unity, if you will, and the fact that they are the countries that China must go through if they want to implement relations with Europe and start and start trading more. So if we look at the Uzbekistan's role within the One Belt, One Road initiative, it's all about location. You know, if we look kind of at them as a whole, what makes them unique or reason, the reason why China would want to build a railroad through them is they have to. Um, you know, the, the she, um, if we look at why, okay, China's providence... Um, Xinjiang, which translates to the last or the new frontier, touches about 12 different countries. And if we look at Uzbekistan, it's one of them. And the railroad, the railroad system within Uzbekistan is really important. But if we understand how poor Uzbekistan is, what we have to understand is the GDP is around $420 per person. Um, I mean that's that's what that's what people are making household consistently and that seems pretty decent and their GDP as a whole is about 63 billion which in comparison to Pakistan Pakistan makes about which is the same area makes about 360 billion so we're looking at quite a difference there with de- depending on goods and services now the reason why I talk about Uzbekistan and stands is the stands are really important right now because of the role they're going to pay play for this Chinese railroad system. Um, we're looking right now, and, and, and it was kind of on the table, but now it's a go. And the Chinese government, the Chinese railroad company, is building railroads as we speak. And they're doing it really fast. They're drilling through tunnels. I mean, obviously, there's a railroad system already in place, but they're building it in order to, to gain a strategic influence within Europe um, and they've already done it. I mean, we're already, they're already shipping project, projects, products, but they're trying to do it on a like larger scale. And whenever these, 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 whenever the railroad system will be up at its, its best, you know, we're looking at a difference of shipping times of seven to eight days, you know, in, in um, 900 kilometers of where you're, you're cutting that down. And a lot of them are going to a town in Duisburg. So Duisburg is actually in um, Germany. And it's kind of strategically located. It's a port town. Before in another podcast, I talked about Gwadar Port in Pakistan and, and its relevance to why China is implementing creating the One Belt, One Road Initiative. 
going on the alternate route through the Suez Canal to ship through Europe. Now, if you look at Duisburg and these other towns, this is actually the railroad system where you're going to be shipping. And you're looking at about 30 trains a week, which doesn't sound like a crazy amount, but if you put it into context, that's about 300,000 shipping containers going to China. And that only, only equates right now for 30% of the total shipping market that's going in Europe. And the reason why it's so relevant is we kind of have to break it down on these factors. So I've gone over before the, the sales rate of trading partners um, for China. If you look at kind of trade as a whole, you know, you, it takes about five to 10 countries to emulate what the United States is buying. So the United States buys more from China than any other assortment of countries within Europe and the technology, we're just, we're massive consumers. So, you know, the kind of the point we're in right now is China is taking our consumption money and building the One Belt, One Road initiative and creating these no interest loans, you know, and at some point, you know, when we look at it right now, China's already spent, spent close to $1 trillion on the One Belt, One Road initiative. And, and that is like, whenever we think about $1 trillion, what we have to understand is if we look at the equivalent of $1 trillion, you know, if, if we put it into like a common thing, like buying houses, um, if we were to buy 80 million houses at about $170,000, that would equate to a trillion dollars. So that's how much money is being built, $80 million. And when we break down what the One Belt, One Road initiative is doing, they're trying to influence 150 countries. So if we look at the countries as a whole, there's about 193 countries total in the world. And China is trying to build trade to 150 of them. They've already spilt $1 trillion. They're already well on their way since 2013 as a result of Xi Jinping Li and leading them. So we're getting these different kind of aspects of what's really going on, you know, and it's like China is building and it's building and it's building in order to get to a point to where they're no longer going to have to rely on the United States for purchase power. You know, right now we have kind of purchase power and you know, we have such the ability, if we look at our home, you know, the common home in the United States probably has roughly four to five TVs. And if we look at the purchase of those TVs, I wouldn't be surprised if over 80% of them come from China, just TVs alone. Then we break down cell phones, different technology aspects, such as even keyboards, guitars, you know, depending on the location. Then we look at our car, depending on chips and everything like that. You know, th there's so much purchasing power there that it's higher than probably 10 or 15 or, or maybe even 20 families, for example, like in Uzbekistan. So we are, we are at this precipice now where we don't really know kind of what the next 25 to 30 to 50 years are going to hold for China. But here's what we do know. They have a consistent plan and it's being led by President Xi Jinping within the CCP. They're trying to emulate what they had before with the Silk Road. Um, and they're using a lot of different countries based on the strategic need, like Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Now, one thing I see as a point of conflict with this is, for example, let's look at Xinjiang. Okay, Xinjiang has a population of 10 million Uyghurs, 
Uyghurs in themselves are um, Sufi Muslims, if you will, kind of more believing into the mystic side of Islam. Not as strict. Um, it's equivalent to the beliefs that happen within Russia, within Chechnya. You know, the Chechnyans really weren't violent until the Russians started going in and attacking them. Um, if we use this for an example and we see what's going on within Xinjiang, how the CCP is treating these Muslim groups, how they're working in the genocide, how they're trying to generate schools to get rid of their culture, how they're having men shave their beards, um, how, you know, they're trying to make Uyghur sell alcohol and tobacco products, eat pork, you know, really trying to boil out these this aspect of some people even call it East Turkmenistan, the religion, and then we think about the influence of the stance um, and what that could potentially do, you know as an Islamic uh, motivation, we don't really know how the Chinese government is going to be perceived in this country for a long period of time. And we say it because everyone knows China's intent. You know, if you are in a village in Uzbekistan, for example, and the Chinese railway system is coming through to your town, it's not like, oh, hey, the Chinese are here, you know, you know, this is going to help generate economy, money, etc. The Chinese will come to your town. They bring the engineers, okay? So everyone who's working on the train system that could go be, is going through Uzbekistan is already Chinese. It's not producing a lot of jobs for Uzbekistan. Then we look at the food, okay? We think, okay, well, maybe we can sell them food as a, as a spinoff of them being here, resulting in the economy. The Chinese government bring all their chefs, all their cooks, generating jobs within those environments, okay? Then we think, okay, we don't have food, maybe we can sell them products. The Chinese government brings all their products, you know, they bring them all the way down through their own trash bags, okay? They're creating all the services, all the jobs for the Chinese people so they can get as much out of this Chinese railroad for how the revenue it could be generating. Because once again, the thing that's keeping Xi Jinping up at night isn't these massive uh, invasions of the United States or whatever. It's the fact that he has to keep a billion people employed, especially coming off all of the issues of what happened with the zero COVID policy. And we're seeing kind of the influence of the Chinese people. And if they want to turn on that light, they can turn it on real quickly. Okay. This is something that's so consistent that China has utilized a railroad system for so long. And if they're able to build more railroad systems within Germany, what the Silk Road is really going to look like is going through Gwadar Port and over. So in conclusion, you know, it's just it's really important to be aware of this. I appreciate you guys for listening and uh, we'll get back to you tomorrow.